0: Hey, if you brought a Bible, meet me in John chapter 2. If you are a guest with us or just back for the first time in a long time, we're in part four of a message series called When Pigs Fly. And we titled the series that because I believe there are a lot of things that are still possible, which a lot of folks believe are impossible. We call them miracles. And what we like to do as a culture, we like to explain away what we cannot explain. And so we say things like, well, I could never believe that would happen unless pigs fly. Or, you know, I, I could never expect something like that in my life. Or I'll believe that or I'll see that and uh, when pigs fly, hence the title. So over these weeks together, we've been exploring the miracles of Jesus, because I believe God wants to do now what He did then, and we're trying to figure out, is there some sort of pattern within Scripture that we can see that will help us notice miracles, because I don't want us having the same approach to miracles happening as pigs flying. I want you to understand that we at this church still believe in miracles. We still believe in miraculous healing and God's divine intervention. And we just uh, want to teach you how to look for them because you won't see them if you don't know how to look for them. I'm super excited about the message today. A message I'm calling The Host with the Most. Wanted to call it on this Mother's Day, The Hostess with the Mostess. <laughs> Sermon prep people were like, you know Jesus is a dude, right? Like, And? So he's a host, not a hostess. So you can't call it the hostess with the most is. And I was like, do you want to preach this weekend? Because the pulpit is all yours. You want Whatever. So I caved the host with the most. Cards on the table. I have a goal for you today. People say I came to church. They only want something from me. I want something for, from you. I want you to experience God in a way you have never experienced God before. I want you walking out of here not just knowing that Jesus is the host with the most, but believing that God has something amazing for your life to come. The best is yet to come. I want you to experience God's Holy Spirit presence in a way that you have never had before. And I hope you realize that there's a difference between knowing something and experiencing something got an example that will maybe help you. I don't know if you were one of the 27 million people who saw Sarah Sherman here for the very first time, but she was born deaf, and they filmed uh, the moment that she was able to hear. In case you weren't one of the 27 million people, here it is. (laughs) It's like so close. We're not right over it. There you go. It's beeping. So now technically your device is on. <laughs> can you tell? Oh, that's exciting. Or you can put it down for a second. Just get used to the sound. <laughs> what does it sound like? Hear myself cry. (laughs) Can you hear me? Can you hear your voice? Does your voice sound pretty loud? Um no, not really. let's (laughs) go. My laughter sounds loud. You'll get used to all of that over time. I show you that to remind you, experiencing something and knowing something are drastically different. Sarah knew that there was such a thing as hearing, but until she actually experienced it, that's what made such a dramatic difference. I could have given you dozens of examples of this. I could have described for you a steak from Ruth's Chris cooked medium. Come on, so that's because of how Jesus intended it to be cooked, right? You know, I I could have uh, described for you seeing my wife walk down the beach in her wedding dress. Could have uh, uh, described for you, uh, articulated to you the sounds of an electric guitar as trampled underfoot, played in the dingy confines of Knucklehead's Saloon. But at the end of the day, you would have had to be there for all of those things because knowledge without experience never leads to the difference that uh, it makes in somebody's life. It pales in comparison. My point is, you can have knowledge about music and hearing and flavors and eating and beauty and seeing, but you won't know the full grandeur of any of those things until you actually experience them. And what I'm going to argue today is you can't fully experience any of those things until you come to know and experience the God who created them. For our benefit, mind you. you know, how amazing is God that He has given us good gifts to enjoy? And as we experience His creativity, it would be for our joy and His glory. In my estimation, there are really only two types of people in the world. Those who see the sunrise and think to themselves, what am I doing up this early? And those who see the sunrise that God let them experience and think to themselves, praise His glorious name. And I want you to be the latter. I want you to combine knowledge and experience in order for us to do that. Three things that we need to chat about this morning. Invite, involve, believe. You might jot that down so you remember it. Invite, involve, believe. If you want to experience the miracles of God, if you want to learn how to see the things in life as miracles of God, you have to IIB, invite, involve, believe. Uh, If you're going to leave here experiencing a move of God, not just knowing more information about Him, but actually participating in His mission and in His miracles, which is what He's inviting you to do, then you have to involve yourself in His work and believe that He is the one leading you somewhere better. The entire point of the story that we are about to read in John chapter 2 is that what Jesus is offering you is way better than what the world has. And where Jesus is leading you is better than anything you could experience in a destination of your own making. I'll show you. John chapter 2. Let's go. On the third day... A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. You know, how many of y'all know wine flies when you're having fun? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like it just disappears. Who know where to go? Woman, why do you involve me? How many of y'all uh grew up in the house where that phrase was going to get the taste slapped out of your mouth. Anybody, anybody else on that? If my mom asked me something and I said, woman, why do you involve me? Uh, Jack, uh, that's her name, Jackie, Jack, she's coming over the top rope. Okay, and delivering the people's elbow. And she ain't done. You know, she's going to tag in big old Chuck, my dad, Chuck. He's going to come in and he's going to deliver some sweet chin music to the mouth that disrespected his wife in that regard. Some of you young kids, you know, you grew up with this. You go sit in the corner and think about what you've done. we like, time out. We didn't have time out when I was a kid. You know, time out was if mama knocked you out and then you just. <laughs> didn't know what time it was so that's time out but with uh, jesus is the only one who can say this sentence ever woman why do you involve me my hour has not yet come His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You might circle star, underline, highlight whatever you do. Do whatever he tells you. These are the last recorded words that we have of Mary in Scripture. Do whatever he tells you. I wonder if that's significant, that the mother of our Lord, the last words that she ever speaks that we know of are do whatever he tells you. Then he called, to the bride, called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. I hope you realize by now that this is what the world offers you. That they give you something good on the front end and eventually it runs out. And what God is offering you is so much better. The best is yet to come, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and gather in this place and hear from you. We're asking you to do what only you can do and speak to our hearts and change our lives. Help us realize that what you are offering is better. Give us joy. Help us leave this place one step closer to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we found ourselves with Jesus at a wedding. And if I can be real with you, it is the last place I want to be. Anybody else freaked out by weddings? Uh, Weddings and poodles. Okay, I can't deal with either one of those things. In fact, if there was a poodle at a wedding, I am leaving the wedding. I don't care if I was supposed to officiate the wedding. I would say, y'all just need to deal with whatever dysfunction that you've got going here. I cannot be involved with it. You should have come to, you know, more counseling uh, to figure out weddings and poodles and why you would ever have a poodle at a wedding. But in fairness, there is a lot of dysfunction that happens at a wedding there 's you know always I know it 's supposed to be the greatest day in the history of the world, and for a woman it 's supposed to be particularly compelling and it 's like a milestone achievement, but you know there 's always that person who shows up that wasn 't supposed to show up, and it becomes kind of awkward and if you got a reception, you know there 's always awkward dancing in that mug you know, and whatever the bridesmaids are wearing. Likely' also going to be awkward, but uh, fun fact, you all know how uh the history and tradition of bridesmaids actually got started uh, way back in the day they had problems with thieves coming in and stealing the bride true story, and so what they used to do is they would dress up the uh, bridesmaids they'd get a whole bunch of them dressed like the uh bride, and they'd set her up set all of them up front, so that way when the bride burglar showed up, they'd be all confused they'd be like. You know, why is there so many of them? I can't, who is it? Ah, just forget it, and they leave. And so, uh, that's true. You can look it up. That's exactly how the tradition started. You know, apparently, before bridesmaids, you just had to marry the biggest gal you could find. So thieves wouldn't steal her. You know what I mean? Like, I it's ridiculous. But that's true. That's actually, that's that's what happens. But uh, we're at this wedding with Jesus in Canaan and you should be asking yourself the question I ask my wife every time we go to a wedding why why are we here better question why was Jesus here because there's a lot of other things for Jesus to be doing at this point in time I mean it took thousands of years for God's son to come to earth fulfilling God's promise to destroy sin and conquer death and rescue humanity. And after all the prophecies and all the waiting, and there's that whole thing where God didn't even speak between Malachi and Matthew for 400 years, Jesus finally shows up. It's about time. And at the age of 30, when he finally begins his public ministry, after the Holy Spirit had descended upon him like a dove at his baptism, and with all the power of the universe coursing through his veins, what's he do? Wait for it. Goes to a wedding in Cana to solve a catering catastrophe. What? Why? talk about the world's most overqualified bartender, you know. He's like Abraham Lincoln selling stamps during the Civil War. You know, the fate of the union hanging in the balance. And he's like, that'll be 39 cents. Dude, that's a horrible example. They didn't even have a post office back then, so I don't know. What, 39 cents would have been like a million dollars. But salvation of the world, the salvation of souls hanging in the balance, and Jesus is brewing up some cab salve at a wedding reception. Doesn't make any sense. See, the the word arrives at the wedding because he wants to show the world that he attends the events which he is invited to. Notice what it says in verse 2. Jesus didn't invade the wedding. He was invited. Sometimes we invite everything but Jesus into our lives. Think about that for a little while. We do all of these things for God, but when's the last time you actually ask God to be with you in any one of those things? I would argue that God wants to be with you at all times in your life. Jesus would do the dishes with you if you would just invite him. Maybe a better question to ask than why is he there is why was he invited? Not just to this wedding. Jesus invited to all kinds of parties in all kinds of places. If you'll read the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus showing up to all kinds of weird places. Matter of fact, people accused him of being a drunk and a sinner because of the types of parties that Jesus was constantly frequenting. Matthew eleven nineteen. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came, he ate and drank, and everyone said, look at this man. He's a glutton and wine drinker, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But Matthew continues, God's wisdom, however, is shown to be true by its results. In other words, just because I'm around one doesn't mean I are one. So let me ask it again. Why? Why? was Jesus invited to the wedding because he was fun. Because people liked having him around. He was kind of like the life of the party. This is kind of a big deal because Scripture makes it clear we're made in God's image. I hope you realize by now that non-Christians get their perspective of God based on the people of God. It's our behavior and our attitudes that others make their judgments on Jesus on. And many folks find God to be boring, quite frankly, because His people are boring. Which is a conundrum because Jesus wasn't a drag. You know, how many people have you met that claim to be Christian, but apparently nobody told their face? (laughs) Just walk around with a scowl on their face, angry all the time. Like, do you want to go to heaven? Not if you're going to be there. (laughs) You know, because this just seems like not a place like if you're in, I don't want to be around people like that. And it's just want to tell them, you know, enjoy life. Go have some fun. Go sit down at a five-course meal and experience the flavors that God has created. You know Go take a relaxing vacation. Go to the happiest place on Earth. Get to Disney. And go in the summer so you know what hell will actually be like, you know? (laughs) Like, good night. Kids screaming, muggier than a nightmare. M-I-C-K-E-Y, right? H-E-L-L, you know, like it's just horrible, horrible summertime adventure. Uh, Now, don't misunderstand me because you can live a simple life and not be boring. You know, Jesus in his adulthood never traveled further than 30 miles from his hometown. He walked everywhere, didn't have a car, didn't have a closet full of clothes and shoes or a house for that matter. And he was amazing. That's what he had laughter, lots of fun, group of friends, pleasure, an interesting life, delight. People were drawn to Jesus and wanted to be around him because he was awesome and still is. Can the same be said for you and your life? Now, look what happens next, because Jesus is out on the dance floor, just finished up the electric slide, getting ready for the chicken dance. And his mother comes to him and whispers in his ear, hey, they're out of wine, which let's talk a little bit about wine, because depending how you grew up, that's making you a little bit nervous, the fact that Jesus turned water into wine. In fact, you're even more nervous, because I just implied that Jesus was dancing, because he was, (laughs) at a wedding. But somebody might have told you that this wasn't really wine, this was actually juice. So when Mary said they're out of wine, what she actually meant is they're out of welches, except that would be a lie. Uh, There's a Greek word for juice, and a Greek word for wine, and the the word used here for wine literally translates wine. Uh, So... (laughs) Furthermore, the master of the ceremony, when he goes to the groom and says, Bro, you all saved the best wine for last, that wouldn't make any sense if he was talking about juice. You know? And when he says that uh, you serve the, the best wine last, most people serve the best wine first because a few glasses in, nobody's gonna tell the difference. And again, that wouldn't make any sense if they're talking about So let me explain this in a way that maybe will be helpful to you moving forward. In the ancient Near East, with with its scarcity of water, wine was a necessity rather than a luxury. They're in the middle of the desert. So wine was essential to life because it transported easy. It stayed fresh for a long time. Arguably, wine gets better with age, and without electricity and without, you know, any way to refrigerate anything, wine was a necessity. And because of this, in literature, ancient literature, the Bible included, wine came to symbolize sustenance and life, as well as joy and celebration. And ultimately, what I'm trying to drive us at is the fact that Jesus made more wine is very much symbolic of Jesus creating more joy. I don't know about you, but I love the fact that Jesus' first miracle was not about saving a life. It was about saving face. I love that because it reveals how much God cares about the trivial details of our lives. God is great not just because nothing is too big. God is great because nothing is too small. And it's a big deal to you. It's a big deal to God. I guess the question before you now is, do you know where to go when your joy is running low? Because Mary knew where to go. Mary knew that Jesus would have the answer. Mary said so much by saying so little. They're out of line. Do whatever he tells you. That is to say, you don't need to know what to say. You just need to know where to turn. And what was Jesus' response Woman, this doesn't involve me. My hour has not yet come. I can't help but wonder if the reason why Jesus was so hesitant in his response was because he knew this first miracle would trigger the countdown clock to his ultimate miracle. And he wasn't quite ready. And we see that over and over in Scripture. Let this cup pass from me. I'm not quite ready. Because let's be honest, of all the miracles Jesus could have done. Water to wine is pretty insignificant. I mean, it's complex. I couldn't do it. Wine is typically 86% water and 12% ethanol and then 2% of any combination of other things that the brewers are making. But to get the ethanol to join with the water, you have to go through a process called glycolysis, which takes a significant amount of time. So the fact that Jesus did this immediately was rather miraculous, but it wasn't like, oh, you're the son of God, of course, I've missed this the whole time. Miraculous. So what I'm wondering is, what does it mean that that for the first inaugural sign of Jesus Christ's mission by which he's telling the world who he is and what he's come to do, he does not raise somebody from the dead. He does not heal a sick person. He does not make a lame person walk. He does not even preach a sermon nor call anybody into discipleship. What does he do? What his mom told him to? Manufacture some wine. I mean, if you're inventing the biography of Jesus Christ, you would never invent for your introductory sign a miraculous solution to a mere social oversight. The only logical conclusion that we can come to as why this is the first miracle ever recorded for us in Scripture is because it must have happened. Because if we're inventing the life of Jesus, we would want to make sure the first miracle is extremely quintessential. If I'm Jesus' PR guy, I'm going to tell Jesus... Forget about Cana. We need to go to Jerusalem. We need to go to Rome. We need to go somewhere busy with power and people and civilization. Y'all realize they don't even know where Cana is at anymore? Like if you go to Jerusalem and you say, hey, I want to go see Cana, they'd be like, well, we think this is it. But it was so insignificant in terms of geographical location. They don't even know where it is today. That's not how you start movements, Jesus. We need to, to go somewhere with culture and civilization and power. And if I'm Jesus' PR guy, I'm going to say, okay, Jesus, here's what we need to do. We need to end up in Jerusalem, and I'm going to kill a guy for you. Okay, As we can make sure it's a bad guy. I'll stab him, you know, quick shiv to the spleen, whatever. We'll make it quick. And then what you're going to do, Jesus, is you're going to come in, and you're going to raise him from the dead. Like, that's a party. That's what gets movements started. Yet that's not what happened. What is God trying to teach us? Easy. Jesus' primary objective is joy. Point of the passage is, who is it that ultimately makes this a great feast? Who is it that supplies the need in the end? I mean, there's this character at the wedding called the master of the banquet. Your translation might call him the master of the ceremony or the Lord of the feast. We really don't have an equivalent in 2019, but this person was essentially a hype man. They were meant to make sure the party was a full-on party. Wedding receptions back in this culture lasted seven days. And this brother's job was to make sure it was on bleak for the whole week. You know what I'm saying? Like, we got to make sure this thing just keeps going and going. But by the end, who is the true Lord of the feast? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, of all the things that I could tell you, of all the things I could show you, I am many, many things. But this is first, this is primary. This is the thing that I have come to do. I've come to bring life and bring it to the full. God is not trying to keep anything from you. Well, what about the sacrifice of Jesus? What about the rules? What about all these things that you've said I can't do? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, those are for your joy. Those are just boundaries where Jesus says anything outside of these boundaries will not ultimately lead you to joy. Oh, it'll be good for a while. But like the wine at the feast, it'll eventually run out. The point of Jesus dying on the cross for your sin and to make you a new person was for your joy and his glory. It's not meant to keep you from anything. So let me ask you this. How seriously do you take your responsibility for joy? What do you mean responsibility for joy? joy. Oh, Jesus wasn't the only one participating in the miracle. Did you notice that? The outcome was determined by who got involved. Mary got involved. People told her they were out of wine. She says, I know what to do. She goes to Jesus. Says to Jesus, there's no wine. Jesus says, and? Mary says, and do whatever he tells you. And she goes over to the servants. She doesn't turn to Jesus. She turns to them because she knew something very important. Mary knew that Jesus wasn't going to get involved until they did. Some of you are looking for miracles, but you won't do the work of carrying the water jars. Others of you are like, no, no, I'll do all the work. I'll do whatever God asks me to do. If he would just tell me exactly what to do. Except you're looking for the final frontier when God is asking you to take the first step. That's what faith is. Taking the first step without knowing what the second step may even hold. Maybe you should just do what you already know. You don't need God to clarify anything. You just need Him to give you the courage to do what you knew you should have done the first time when He asked you to do it. And you chose to do something else. Listen, it's not in the knowing that the miracle happened, it was in the servant's doing. It says that standing nearby were six stone jars used for ceremonial washing. They were sinks. They were basins. They were used for the people who came to the party to wash off their hands, to make sure they were clean before they were uh, coming in. They were a common element outside of every person's home. And most people look for miracles in the big and the impressive, but it's often what's right in front of you. Common jars used for an ordinary purpose. Jesus doesn't point to what they need. He points to what they have. Needed wine. You got water. Just for the record, the most basic building block in all of nature. Profound reminder that God doesn't need much to work with. But too many Christians are waiting around with their arms crossed, asking God to give them an answer. And God's like, it's all right there in front of you. It's in the basic Jesus puts to use what we already have. We get stuck because we focus on what we don't have when he wants to utilize what we already do have. What he's given you. Jesus has already given you everything you need to succeed. You don't need something new. You just need to do what you already know. Should I take that job? Well, is it going to cost you your marriage? Is it going to cost you your family or your integrity? Should I buy that car? Can you afford it? If you lost your job, could you still pay for it? You know, do what you already know. Where should I go to college? Wherever you can afford to go. I'm, I don't care where you go to college. You know, where can you get a degree? What do you want to major in? For as much fun that I like to make, you know, of K-State, and rightfully so, uh, <laughs> their degrees printed on the same paper as everybody else's. I'm way more concerned, young people, not about where you go to school, but about who you make with friends when you get there. You show me your friends, I'm going to show you your future. And we like to get involved in all of these people when the reality is God is calling you to get involved with these people so you can actually succeed when you get out in the world. You don't need more knowledge. Our culture is addicted to knowledge. Who can I listen to? What podcast? You don't need more knowledge. You know exactly enough already just to get started. But I love that the scriptures filled the jars to the brim. That impresses me because the servants had no guarantees this plan was even going to work. They were taking the word of somebody who they maybe never had even met. To fill up a 30-gallon jar one bucket at a time would have been back-breaking work. They would have had to go to the well, one scoop here, one scoop here, go back to the jars over and over and over again. To fill one jar three quarters of the way full would have been impressive. To fill six 30-gallon water jars all the way to the brim is nothing short of amazing. They don't stop going back and forth to the well until there's no more room in the jars for water. So pay attention here. The guests receive 922 bottles of wine because that's how much water the servants poured in. That is to say if you stop too soon, you might be robbing somebody of the blessing God put you on this planet for. They filled the water all the way up to the brim. God wants to anoint you to do whatever he's called you to do to the best of your ability. Write this down. God responds to trust, not terminology. God responds to trust, not terminology. It's not about what you say. It's about what you do. They filled the jars to the brim with joy, symbolically. Wine, water to wine. Is that how you view your job? Is that how you view your career? where God has placed you? Are you filling it to the brim with joy? Construction worker, teacher, medical field, whatever it is, law enforcement, wherever God has placed you, sales, stay-at-home parent, are you filling your jar to the brim day in and day out with joy? Here's my biggest fear for you, that you'll leave this place like the Master of the banquet, instead of like the servants, it says in the passage that the master of the ceremony didn't know where the wine came from. He knew it tasted good. He had knowledge of the wine, but it was the servants who got the experience of seeing where the wine came from. It was the servants who got to participate in the miracle that God had planned from the very beginning. I don't want you leaving here knowing God more. I want you leaving here experiencing the power of God in your life. That he wants to change you. And he's got something better he's offering you. So let me do this as we close this morning. I want to draw your attention to some language that the Bible uses over and over again. Very sensory language. For example, Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's interesting language. 1 Peter 2 says, Now you have tasted that God is gracious. And Ephesians 3 says, I want you to have the power and understanding to grasp how long and wide and high and deep the love of Christ is. Look at the language. We know God is good, but I want you to taste God's goodness. I want you to experience it. You, we know God is a God of grace. This is why he sent his son. But I want you to savor his graciousness. What Jesus actually did in your life. We know God loves us, for God so loved the world, but I want you to grasp, I want you to feel, I want you to understand His love. Why all of this language? Because Christians are being called in all of these passages to go beyond believing into experiencing. It's not enough, the Bible says, just to know God and know that he's love, and know that he's powerful. No, 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 no. You have to taste. You have to see. You have to grasp. You have to take a hold of. You are being invited by God to be involved in the greatest story ever to be told in the history of the world. That God loved you so much that he made a way for you to be in a relationship with him. And that all of these things vying for your time and taking you away from the one true God of the universe is only leading you to empty life. Only in Jesus is joy found. The miracle of joy in your life can take place today. You can leave here changed not just knowing more information about God, but experiencing the love that He has for you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, it's up to us to receive Your love, to make the choice to follow You. God, I'm praying that You move in such a powerful way in these next few moments, that You speak to hearts I can only declare your word and it's up to you to transform the lives that hear them. I don't know how all of you came in this morning, but I know God doesn't want you leaving the same. And I know there's hurt in this room. I know there's sickness in this room. I know there's broken marriages in this room. I know there's all kinds of... I know that some of you struggled because today was Mother's Day and it broke your heart to show up to church. But God is here. And he wants to turn your mourning into joy, into dancing, into love. You'll just take hold of what He's offering you. God is speaking to you now. Don't tune that out. Some of you, God is asking you to make the profession of faith, maybe for the very first time. The Bible makes it clear that if you'll just confess in your heart, believe if Jesus died, you'll be saved. I'd invite you just to do that right now. Say, God, I believe in your son Jesus, that he died for me, that he rose from the dead. He's forgiven me of all my sin, past, present, and future, and he'll forever hold me close. God, thank you for saving me give my life to you. God help us, each one, to have joy the rest of this day and be filled up for the rest of the week. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen.